Let's go to Proverbs chapter 18. And I just trust that as we open the Word of God and look at this together, uh, despite it being so common and despite forgiveness being so fundamental to the Christian faith, it is something that we often get wrong in different ways. Not only that, but I would also like to look at some of the more challenging circumstances under which we need to forgive. Because if our theology does not work in the extremes, our theology does not work. Proverbs 18, verse 19. A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And their contentions are like the bars of a castle. So I have no doubt today in a room like this that there are strong cities. We have been offended. And, and as we go through this, there is no cheap, easy fix. Offenses, they take many shapes and forms. Some of you have been insulted by others. Some defrauded. Others violated. Some betrayed. Abandoned. Assaulted. Bullied. Robbed. Neglected. Offended. Deceived. The list goes on. And yet the reality of our Christian faith is that it is founded on the very principle of forgiveness. Saying, I am a Christian, really is tantamount to saying that I am a forgiving person if we are to live true to the divine life that is within us. And yet today, understandably because of the many offenses that happen, many of us here carry burdens of unforgiveness. And I want our young folks especially to note that what you do with your unforgiveness in your life may actually be the biggest determinant of spiritual success in your Christian life. What you do with offenses. I'd like us to cover three headings today. First, why do we need to do this whole forgiveness thing? Second, what are we actually called to forgive? We need to be very clear on that. And third, how do we forgive? So, why do we need to do this whole forgiveness thing? We'll look at Matthew 18 in a little bit here. But in that chapter, one of the things that the Lord says is that offenses must come. Offenses must come. Offenses are part of the normal experience of living in a sin-broken world. None of us will live down here without being offended without being offended by others. And I just mention this because sometimes we get offended, and, and often in, even in the smaller things of life. And there's this kind of self-righteous entitlement that I get into that maybe you see in yourself as well. And it comes up in the form of a protest, like, why did this happen to me? Or maybe we're shaking our fist at God or someone else and saying, nobody should ever offend me. Well, that's almost right. But offenses must come. This is part of our reality here. So it's not realistic to expect that nobody will ever offend us. And staying in that place of just resenting that is keeping us stuck because it's true and impossible that nobody should offend you. But impossible to, it is impossible to live down here and avoid all offenses. Now, with the presence of the Spirit of God in this world, I'm going to talk about pretty severe offenses in a moment here. With the presence of the Spirit of God in this world, the world is mostly a fairly safe place, but not 100%. And at the end of the day, the only safe place is with God. So to help us make it through this world, given that it can't be guaranteed to be safe for all of us, for any of us, actually. God has granted us the ability to forgive. That's how we respond to these offenses. And when I'm talking about this in, in this context, forgiveness is the means by which we let go of the hurt that happens in those unsafe moments and yet still continue to move forward with life. Forgiveness is a way of moving forward. Now, having said that, I need to sidebar on the subject of traumatic offenses for a moment. There are some violations of personal safety that require a very different approach to forgiveness. If you are a survivor of domestic abuse, verbal, physical, or psychological, or if you were a survivor of childhood sexual abuse or assault, 
Then there is what we mentioned yesterday, that violation of relationship. In some way or another, these can look like sexual betrayals, pornography, emotional or physical affairs. It can look like relational violations like abandonment or neglect. Those are offenses as well. And those kinds of offenses, they carry trauma with them. Not always, but usually. And some of you will have experienced these issues and not incurred trauma. Most who have gone through experiences like this will carry trauma in your bodies as a result of what you have experienced. That's, trauma is the experience of, of uh, having our brains on high alert in present circumstances as a protection factor against something that happened previously. And if you carry trauma, you'll, you'll need to cut yourself some slack on the subject of forgiveness. Uh, some may be able to forgive before resolving the trauma, but for many, you will need time to resolve the trauma first. And I say that because as Christians, we always rush to that forgiveness piece because we think, especially if we're helping someone as a shepherd, we think if I can just bump them into forgiveness, they'll be able to let go of all this and they'll be over it. But they might actually more need to, to be working through that before they can begin to forgive. So we need to have that discussion and be willing to allow forgiveness to happen on the timing of how the Spirit of God is working with that individual. And so when we're talking about these difficult things, and I don't want to cut into Stephen's territory after in his message, but allow me to say right now that while forgiveness needs to be a goal of Every one of us, even for these kinds of offenses, forgiveness needs to be a goal. Reconciliation is optional. It's optional. It should only be pursued if it's safe to do so. And I also want to say that while Christians are always called to forgive, Christians are still biblically permitted to lay charges against an offender so that legal prosecution occurs. Now this is contrary to what is commonly taught and I believe needs to be corrected. In Canada, let me go to the legal side for a moment and we'll talk about the scriptures. In Canada, you are only legally required to report a crime when a person under the age of 19 needs protection. You're not legally required to report other crimes. But the question remains, what about justice if someone has criminally offended you? Even another believer, what if another believer has criminally Offended you. The first part of First, of first Corinthians six, where we're told not to, where we're told to judge one another and not to take things before the magistrate. That passage is often taken to mean that we are never to report crimes and we are never to press any charges against another believer. But a careful reading of that chapter will show you that only minor civil issues are prohibited from being dealt with in the legal system. It's not talking about covering up criminal activity. A crime is not merely a civil matter. It's not, it's not merely a dispute, as the term is used in that chapter. So the scriptures do not prohibit anyone from reporting a crime against themselves, even by a fellow believer. And so if someone has committed a crime against you, biblically, it's not unforgiving to report that crime. You could forgive the person and report the crime. In John chapter 18, verse 22, to give you an example, the Lord Jesus Christ is slapped in court. And he responds with a legitimate legal protest to the slap. And he chose to do that as a legal response to an illegal activity. It was a legal response to an illegal activity. And he did that rather than respond criminally. At the end of Acts chapter 16, Paul was illegally mistreated by the officials. And as a result of that, he makes a legal appeal against what happened. And so we see examples to support what I am teaching you. So when a crime has occurred, don't let anyone silence your voice. You have every biblical and every legal right to pursue righteousness. And just allow me to say this, that it is a sick and perverted, toxic assembly that will collaborate with a criminal to cover up his activity. If you are in an assembly like that, 
please. Please. The Christian faith is founded on love and on grace that protects the fatherless, the widow, the defenseless, not the offender. And we need to get this straight. Straight. I would also like to say that forgiveness does not require you to stay in an abusive situation. This often comes up for wives that are in abusive situations. Wives are not required to submit to abusive husbands. The submission of Ephesians chapter 5 is only in the Lord. If he is acting outside of the Lord, you are not required to submit to that. We are only to submit in the Lord. What about in families? If your parents are abusive, you honor them. You honor them by setting boundaries and leaving home as soon as feasibly possible or asking for help if you cannot. If that's not the kind of behavior that they want you to honor, they should change their behavior. Go. Find safety. Find healing. Forgiveness never requires you to endure abuse. Persecution? Yes, that's First Peter. First Peter talks about enduring things for Christ's sake, but that's when the abuse is targeted at you because you're a Christian. It's different. Domestic abuse, not required to tolerate that. And so I'm not going to say much more today about traumatic offenses. I, I believe I circle back to it a little bit later in this message, but just be advised that most of what I have to say about forgiveness this afternoon is more on the line of the middle of the road, if I can borrow Stephen's term, offenses, or even lighter offenses. And it assumes that if trauma has occurred, that you've worked through that, that that has been resolved. Just remember that the Lord Jesus Christ came not only to heal the brokenhearted, but also to set the captive free and deliver those who are oppressed. You may have more work to do than others if this is your situation, but the Lord is in your corner. He's in your corner. He wants you to find freedom. He wants you to find relief from oppression of what has happened to you. If you're in this situation, please find, seek help. Talk to Stephen or myself or your elders, someone who can connect you with help. So coming more to this middle-of-the-road side of things, what happens when we are offended? Initially, there's uh, hurt. There's sometimes fear. Oftentimes, anger that follow an offense, these are normal emotions. And it's not wrong to experience them. Anger, of course, can be a tricky one for believers. But if it is an anger of protest against an injustice or a violation, rather than something like an anger of entitlement that we spoke of earlier, I don't see how that's sinful. That's legitimate anger. It's the anger that calls for justice. But if anger and other negative feelings become residual, residual within us, and become a burden of resentment without an efficient resolution, then we're looking at the subject of unforgiveness. Unforgiveness, here's a definition for you, is delayed negative emotions, such as resentment, bitterness, hostility, hatred, residual anger, and residual fear, which motivate people to reduce those emotions. That's what unforgiveness is. And why is unforgiveness a problem? Well, most of us hold on to unforgiveness because we want justice. We want the offender or the perpetrator to be punished. We feel like if we, if we just let go that we lose part of ourselves, that there's no restitution then that can ever be made, and it feels unfair. And we may have this major concern that if we forgive, then we also need to reconcile. And, and if we know that it's not safe to reconcile, then we actually hold on to our unforgiveness as a protective stance because we don't have to go towards the offender. If I maintain hostility, I can keep the distance. That's safer for me. But the problem is that unforgiveness is not the same as punishment. It's not the same thing. Unforgiveness never, usually never affects the perpetrator or the offender. And all the time I see people using it as a way to protest to the offender in the hopes that the offender will come and make amends and heal the relationship. But I've never heard an offender actually come and say, it was your unforgiveness that motivated me to make things right. So, can I just say this gently, unforgiveness, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You likely know that, don't you? But not only that, but it ends up punishing you, the victim. It punishes you and I, yeah. If we don't offend... 
Go over to Matthew chapter 18. There's a lovely passage about how this all works. Matthew chapter 18. Sometime I think it would be worth having a series of meetings and all the verses that live in the shadow of amazing verses. And I don't think I ever hear the back half of Matthew 18 turn spoken of because we all stop at verse 20. But there's a really neat parable in here. It says, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, Matthew 18, verse 21, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore, is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants? And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. That's an impossible amount of money, is all you really need to know. Before as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and his children, and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, it's like twenty bucks, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me all that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will, I will pay thee all. And he would not, but he went, and he cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told to their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredst me, because you besought me to forgive you. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also to you, if ye from your hearts forgive not. That's unforgiveness. Forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. We'll unpack this a little bit as we go through here, but there are at least three consequences for unforgiveness that we can identify. First of all, the opposite of unforgiveness, forgiveness. Forgiveness is good for your health. It's good for your health. Unforgiveness registers physiologically in our bodies in a very similar way to stress. The same kinds of brain activity, the same kinds of hormones impact, impacts on the central nervous system, impacts on your blood chemistry. Unforgiveness registers in so many aspects in our body the same way that stress does. And studies over the last 20 years are demonstrating a clear link between unforgiveness and physical and mental health issues. And here in the last verse, uh, the second to last verse of Matthew chapter 18, you have tormentors. I believe that the tormentors of this verse are the physical and mental consequences of unforgiveness. His Lord was wroth and delivered him till the tormentors till he should pay all that was due to him. Unforgiveness, second thing, is unforgiveness with others also impacts your relationship with God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And that does not mean that you will lose your salvation, but just that in a paternal sense, God withdraws the closeness of relationship so that the distance you feel from Him will motivate you to forgive others. Unforgiveness, I believe, is also a failure to discern the Lord's body when we're partaking of His Supper. It's biblically linked there as well to health problems again. 1 Corinthians 11.29 For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. Forgiveness is the reason why Christ gave his body. And so for me to, to, to partake of that symbol of unity and to harbor unforgiveness is a real contradiction. That is unworthy. It's an unworthy manner. And it's failing to discern his body. Now, 
This may raise the question practically, if there is unforgiveness, does that mean you should not partake of the Lord's Supper if you have unforgiveness? It's not intended to stop us from partaking. It's intended to drive us towards doing the work that we need to do to keep short accounts with God, to forgive. What about those who were abused or traumatized by other Christians or even other people? Their healing could take years. And I think there that perhaps I would just suggest that the extent of his mercy is proportional to the extent of the trauma. But still there's that motivation to stay engaged in the process of forgiveness and not to willingly harbor unforgiveness and not work on it. So those are three consequences for unforgiveness. It can indeed affect us emotionally. It can affect us physically. And it can certainly affect us spiritually. And of course, just allow me to qualify whenever we talk about the sickness issue. Just because someone is sick, it doesn't mean that they have sinned necessarily. Much of our illness just comes from living in a sin-broken world. So these are the reasons why we need to forgive. Let's take a moment to look at what we are called to forgive. When you and I are offended, what is it? What is it that we're actually offending? It's very important that we understand this. Many Christians get this wrong, and as part of this, we get our wires crossed between the forgiving that we do as humans and the forgiving that God does. Those two acts have different components to them. Even though there's this common element of forgiveness, they have different components, different outcomes. And in short, God forgives sin, and we forgive hurt. Allow me to explain. First of all, what does divine forgiveness entail? I want to give you seven distinct features about God's forgiveness. First, God alone can forgive sin. Luke chapter 5, verse 21 offers the question, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Mark chapter 2, verse 10, The Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. I don't read anywhere in my Bible that humans can forgive sin. We only forgive the hurt that comes from sin. The second thing is that God's forgiveness includes pardon from punishment. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Beautiful verse. That's what God does. He pardons when He forgives. Human forgiveness may or may not include pardon. Third, God's forgiveness includes the non-remembering of sin. Two times in the book of Hebrews, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. We may or we may not get there when we forgive. Fourth, God's forgiveness includes deliverance from the power of sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 18, Having been set free from sin, we, become, we have become slaves of righteousness. We can't offer that as humans in our forgiveness. They may reoffend. Number five, God's forgiveness includes the maintenance of justice. Romans 3.26 says that God is both just and the justifier of he who believes when salvation occurs. We can unjustly forgive or we can forgive and not enact earthly justice. But God's forgiveness always satisfies his justice. It's a beautiful thing. God's forgiveness always satisfies His justice. Six, God's forgiveness requires repentance. Luke chapter 24, verse 47, the Great Commission issues this command that the repentance and the remission of sins should be preached. And this is because reconciliation is always part of God's forgiveness. But reconciliation, as we shall see, is not always part of human forgiveness. It is not always required of us to reconcile. We are always required to forgive. So we may or may not see repentance. God will always see repentance. Number seven, final one. God's forgiveness results in salvation. Results in reconciliation, as I mentioned. Colossians 1, verse 20. Having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him I say, to reconcile all things to Himself. So what does human forgiveness entail? In contrast to this, first, humans can forgive without repentance from the offender. Often I hear believers say, I'm waiting for an apology before I can forgive. I'm waiting to see some repentance before I forgive. And there's one passage that I know of that links forgiveness to repentance. Let's go over there to Luke chapter 17. 
And, and I, I, I think I get why folks do this. But let me just challenge you on it. You, you see, what, see what you think here. Luke 17, verse 3. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. So what if the offender does not repent? That's the question. So like I said, we often take this verse and we think, well, if he didn't repent, I don't need to forgive him. I'm off the hook. It's The ball's in his court. There's no apology. I don't need to forgive. Luke 17, verse 4, it says, if he repents, forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. Very clear, right? The logical opposite of that, the logical opposite of that, if he doesn't repent, do not forgive him. But that's what you call an exegetical fallacy. It's a wrong way of interpreting Scripture to assume, because you're making an assumption. Your assumption is that the opposite of what is written in Scripture is true. The Scripture says, if he repents, forgive him. The logical opposite, therefore, must be, if he doesn't repent, don't forgive him. But the, but the, uh, the problem is that it doesn't say that, does it? It only says, if he repents. What you need to know from verse 4 is that if your brother does repent, you are required to forgive. Nothing more should be taken from this verse. I saw a brother on Facebook the other day, and I understand. But he says, I've been waiting four years for an apology. Why wait four years for an apology? Why do that to yourself? If you only forgive when people repent, think this through with me, if you only forgive when people repent or when they apologize, you put yourself in a very disempowered condition. Because you see yourself as a captive to their lack of repentance. They have control now. And that's going to just breed further bitterness and resentment in your heart. Listen, brother, sister, you don't have to reconcile. That part probably should wait for repentance. But forgiveness only depends on you. Nobody can take that away from you. The Christian can always forgive. So what does human forgiveness entail? First of all, repentance is not required. The second thing we need to know is that we forgive hurt. Matthew chapter 18, where we just were, makes it clear that forgiveness comes from the heart. If ye from your hearts forgive not one another. It's an emotional act. Understand this. It's an emotional act of exchanging hard, negative feelings. Like anger, like resentment, like bitterness. There's softer negative feelings, maybe sadness, the disappointment about what happened, the grief, and then also compassion towards the offender. This is also represented in the Greek word used for forgiveness, which carries the idea of letting go of something or sending something away. Part of what we let go of is the hurt. We also let go of revenge. We also let go of resentment. We let go of a victim identity sometimes. We need to do that as well. Maybe we need to let go of entitlement towards anger or the entitlement that we feel towards being bitter. But really what we're doing is we're forgiving the hurt, not the sin. Third point, as I've mentioned, humans may or may not choose to pardon an offender. Parents would understand this one, right? You forgive your children, but you know that they still need to experience consequences when appropriate. That's forgiving, but it's not pardoning. And that's a good thing to do when necessary. And I'll just say this about the decision to pardon or not pardon. Sometimes you actually love someone by refusing to pardon them. You understand that they need to experience the consequences in order to grow as a person. Other times you will choose to make pardon part of how you express love towards that person. And really so, on this individual basis, whatever has happened in your experience, this is something between you and God to pray about and to decide what to do. But on the flip side of this, neither pardon or forgiveness can be demanded from the offender. The choice to forgive in Scripture is always in the hand of the offended party and nobody else. And we need to respect the autonomy of others in this regard. We can't become... Uh, 
trying to take even power and control by demanding forgiveness from others that we've offended. We can ask for it. Humans may or may not be able to reconcile. And I'll leave this for Stephen, but just note that God always reconciles, as we said, that's part of his forgiveness. We don't always reconcile. We're not always biblically required to reconcile. And we usually cannot forget, as I have written there. Now, the, the hurt one is interesting. Uh, because oftentimes we feel like we've forgiven someone and then we like see them maybe at another conference or we go back to meeting or maybe they make a comment and just like it all comes rushing back. Like, and you're just like ready to do that again. And so what's, what's that about? Well, usually it means there's ways in which we have been hurt that we haven't yet acknowledged. And sometimes that hurt that has happened can be like layers of an onion and it just needs peeled back. And that takes time and prayer and openness. It really forces us to keep engaging in this process of forgiveness to uncover all that needs to be forgiven. So bear that in mind. Now, I'd like to tackle a very difficult example. It stretches the truth of, the, not the truth, the limits of human forgiveness. Let's say you have a Christian couple. The husband has an extramarital affair. He unknowingly contracts HIV in that affair. He infects his wife. The affair is eventually disclosed a couple years later. And following testing, HIV is diagnosed in the husband, in the wife, and in the newborn baby. Now this is a situation with consequences that cannot be fixed. It includes hurt, and it includes impact, ramifications on on multiple levels. That husband will never pay for that sin. He won't go to hell because he's saved. How could this possibly be fair? to the wife, to the baby, as that child becomes a teenager. How is it fair for God to forgive the husband and do nothing to protect the wife or baby? Judicially, judicially, and this has helped me when I've struggled with some issues of forgiveness. Judicially, it it can be helpful to remember that God has punished His Son for that sin. So justice has occurred. It's happened. Somebody suffered. And in that way, the wrong that is done was fully and completely acknowledged. Now, I have not experienced anything as severe as what I'm describing, but um, that's just one way that is helpful, helpful to know, to remember that that price has been paid in full. And when we understand that the price has been paid in full, We no longer feel the burden to try to get that debt paid somehow. It was paid by my Savior on the offender's behalf. And I was able to make peace and to worship Christ because of that realization that He has paid that price. But things really do go to another level when a person is deeply violated and something is taken from them that can never be given back. In this case, health. Maybe in another case, innocence. And now we're back towards the spectrum of traumatic offenses. And the question still remains, why did God let this happen? If He is, if He was powerful enough to stop it, why? And Christians that have been through something this severe, I've spoken with them. and They hate God. They are born again, just as much as you or I. They hate God. Very difficult. Because in this circumstance, it appears that God is complicit in the consequences. And in that question, there is the, of what going on, like why did God not stop this? We're basically assigning God into the role of the perpetrator, the offender. Do you see that? He could have stopped it, but he didn't. If you have power to restrain evil and you do not, you become a perpetrator It's like remaining silent when someone is bullied and not defending the weak. You you collude with the bullying by your silence, even if you don't like it. And and so in the case of the wife becoming infected, infected with HIV and the child, there's only two active roles at play in which the victim can place God. Either God must be a perpetrator or God must be a victim. And we think to ourselves, well, he's too powerful to be a victim. I wouldn't choose to be a victim, so it cannot be that. 
It's a very difficult place to be in. Now, the Reformed, the Calvinistic schools of theology will explain to you that God wills evil as well, and we have to trust him. I cannot support that. I find the biblical support for that unconvincing. That belief is a confabulation of sovereignty and omnipotence. And those two things are different. They're separate. But if God is not a perpetrator, what is he? Well, I believe it's possible to see God as a co-victim. And my answer to this is in the first part of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, which says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And so relating this to the wife, I would take it that Christ shared in her grief and sorrow as a victim, not as a perpetrator. He willingly participates in the experience of the victim through Calvary. And this was evident in the way that our Savior was dealt with in His trial, in His crucifixion, in His death. He bore our griefs. This wife. This is a hypothetical situation. I'm sure it's happened. He bore her grief. The loss of her health. The loss of dreams of a healthy baby. The loss of what she thought her husband was. The loss of the way she thought her life was going to unfold. The loss of her health. Surely, 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 He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And how amazing is it that God who didn't have to take any interest in our brokenness would have sent His Son to participate as a co-victim in our suffering. What a Savior. What a Savior. So the Lord Jesus, dear brother, sister, has borne your grief and carried your sorrows. Why? So that you can be set free from them. So that you could be far more than a victim. You could become a survivor living in the power of a resurrected life. Wonderful. So forgiveness, as you see then, can be very complex. But at the end of the day, undergirding it are simple principles such as we have seen. And there are differences between divine forgiveness and human forgiveness that we need to note. And all this needs to be kept within the context of what we've read in Matthew chapter 18. The lesson of Matthew chapter 18 is that we have been forgiven by God. God is the King. God is the King in Matthew chapter 18. We have been forgiven an impossible death. And the offenses that we experience here in this world do not measure up, even the severe ones, do not measure up to the magnitude of suffering that Christ went through to pay our debt. And so we're called to forgive those smaller debts. We've been forgiven much more than we are required to forgive. So let's talk about how to forgive then. How do we forgive others? If you've now understood hopefully a little bit about why we need to forgive, we see there's differences between these things. We're ready to do it. How do we forgive? Remember our definition for unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is delayed negative emotions such as resentment, bitterness, hostility, hatred, residual anger, and residual fear. The word, as I mentioned in our New Testament, can simply be translated sending away. It's the idea of releasing those hard feelings. And as I said, in many cases, releasing the requirement for justice. This is what we are told by God, and it is true, but it's only part of what it means to forgive. We need to understand the full story from Scripture. And the part that is usually, a miss, usually missing is the part that we started our conference with. It's emotions. Forgiveness is an emotional journey. And I do not believe that authentic forgiveness is just merely a cognitive transaction. Like, I, I decide to forgive you, so we're good now. That's cognition. It's thinking. It may be like that for the simplest, the smallest offenses. But even that I kind of doubt. There's usually some emotion in there. It is an emotional process, and I will demonstrate this clearly from Scripture in just a moment. And I will grant that it may start with a decision to forgive. And that might be a good place to start, but it is primarily an emotional process. So here's a good, robust definition from Worthington. Um, I would highly recommend his book. It's in 
the resource file that is on the Chatham Gospel Hall website. Forgiveness is a willingness to abandon your rights to resentment, negative judgment, and indifferent behavior toward one who unjustly injured us while fostering the undeserved qualities of compassion, generosity, and even love toward him or her. This man, Worthington, is a forgiveness researcher and was a forgiveness researcher and uh, a Christian. And one day got a call from the police and his 80-something-year-old mother had been murdered. $200 worth of stuff taken from her house. Just a cheap burglary gone wrong. She was violated with a wine bottle. That's how he found her. And all of a sudden this researcher on forgiveness is now enacting all of what he has been studying. That's a definition that's hammered out on the anvil of real life. So a quick recap of Matthew chapter 18. Just flip back over there so we understand this parable together. The question that launches this discussion is how much forgiving should I do? That's verse 21. How often should I forgive my brother? And just remember here that as we look at this passage together, the king is God. The king in this parable is God. The servant is you or I. The fellow servants are other believers. And so the parable is teaching that we have been forgiven a profound debt so that any human offense against us will never be as great as the debt we have been forgiven. The price paid by Christ to forgive us is more than we can ever imagine paying to forgive another. And it's when we lose this perspective that we become unforgiving. And as I noted earlier, there are divine consequences for this. I want you to note in this passage the language of forgiveness very clearly. Look at verse 27. The Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. Look at uh, verse 31. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry. They were exceedingly sorry and told their Lord. Forgiveness is born from the emotion of compassion. Look at verse 28. The same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat. Pay me that thou owest. Unforgiveness is born from hard, harsh emotions. Forgiveness comes from compassion or empathy. Compassion or empathy. The essence of compassion is found in this word empathy. And this is just so important to understand. Empathy is the ability, ability to understand and identify with the feelings of other people. Only sociopaths are unable to express empathy. The ability to, uh, I'm having a hard time with that word ability, to understand and identify with the feelings of another. And so when it comes to the subject of forgiveness, there's really just four words that we really need to know. To engage with empathy towards someone who has hurt ourselves. Hurt people, hurt people. That's how it works. Hurting people who have been hurt. People who come to us with hurt, unresolved hurt in their lives. They hurt us. They act out of that hurt. In verse 28, the servant has no empathy for his fellow servants. And unforgiveness follows. In verse 27, the king clearly had empathy for the servant and forgiveness follows. You can also see another example in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. As the Lord is crucified, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is empathy for the soldiers. And he's saying there, if I walked in their shoes to this day, I might have done the same thing. Empathy for the person who has offended you allows you to look into the brokenness of that person's life. And when we see the world through their eyes at the, at the moment of offense, we have to conclude that if we had walked in their shoes from the very beginning of their life to that point in their life, we would have no reason to think that we would do any 
stature. I'll say it again. Empathy or compassion allows me to consider the offender and recognize, realize that if I had walked in his shoes to the same point in life, I would have no reason to think that I would have made a better choice. And really this comes back to this little mantra, hurt people, hurt people. Bullies, abusers, so on. They're hurting people. And out of that hurt, they hurt others. And it doesn't mean that we should excuse or accept their behavior, but when we see past the hurting they do to the hurt they act out of, we begin to move towards empathy. And this requires a humility that causes me to understand that I am no better than the person who offends me. No better than the person who hurts me. Like the servant here in Matthew chapter 18, he needed to understand that he was no better than the other servants. They had debt. He had debt. He was treated with compassion despite his debts, his profound debt. They should be treated with compassion despite their debt. And when you feel that empathy or compassion, you've shifted from those hard negative feelings of unforgiveness towards the softer feelings of compassion, of kindness, of love. And then even if it is safe to reach out to the offender for reconciliation. So forgiveness is this emotional exchange of resentment for compassion. Empathy for the offender is the key that unlocks the door. Empathy comes when we understand that we have no moral superiority over the offender. That's hard to accept sometimes. That the playing field of humanity is truly level. Truly level. We're all human. We all sin. We are all compassed with infirmity. And what makes empathy hard for me to express or any of us to express is when we see ourselves as incapable of committing the same offense. I would never do that. If you'd walked in their shoes. That's not a biblically defensible position. There is no moral superiority. So we've established that forgiveness is an emotional process that it requires empathy or compassion. What are the specific steps to forgive? Number one, recognize the hurt and anger that are present. The king here in this chapter, verse 24, he was fully aware of the debt. The number is named. We have to stop and acknowledge all of the hurt that has happened. This is not about denying it, about saying, I'll just forget it, I'll put it behind me. But it's actually truly grasping all the hurt and acknowledging all of the hurt that has happened. There's no denial. There's no sweeping under the carpet. You don't have to minimize on on behalf of the offender. We need to acknowledge what has happened. The second thing that we do is we commit to work on forgiveness. That's an internal thing. I'm going to do this. Maybe there's a dear believer here today and you've been holding on to something for years so much so that it's part of your identity. We talk about consecration in our conferences. Like this big thing of going into the mission field. Why don't we start with what happens in here? Would you commit, would you consecrate yourself to forgiveness today? To start healing. To bring hope. The third thing that we need to do is then is develop empathy and compassion. We realize that only hurt people hurt people. We allow ourselves to see the other person's hurt, to feel compassion for their hurt. That gives us understanding as to why they might, might do what they have done. And then fourthly, we move away from those negative emotions. We loose them. We let them go. We talk to God. We say, I'm done with the bitterness. It's ossifying in my heart. It needs to go. We replace those with softer, compassionate emotions toward the fender. Help me to see the world through their eyes. And then as time progresses and we kind of get hit with those little repeats where we have to come back and do the work again, we remind ourselves of the forgiveness work that we have done. The forgiveness that we have received from God. So that can help us with those hard feelings that we visit. And again, can I just have your permission to exhort you on this. Some of you have been carrying a weight of unforgiveness for a long time. It's been a huge burden. It's been a huge burden. When you acknowledge the hurt, you honor the significance of what has happened to you. 
When you acknowledge the hurt, you can understand that there is someone else that has come alongside you as a co-victim to bear the grief and the sorrow. And the essence of the word forgiveness is in just these three little words. Let it go. Let it go. Don't carry it. Let it go. At the end of the day, unforgiveness only penalizes you. And if you're married, your spouse, if you have family, your children. Maybe some of you are so entrenched in this, and again, I'm not wanting to minimize the profound hurt that you've experienced in any way. But you're so entrenched in this unforgiveness, it has become part of your identity, so much so that you have no idea what it would like be like to not be the victim. To not be that offended person in your assembly. You're afraid you're letting go of justice. Maybe you're afraid that your voice will never be heard. That your protest will go unacknowledged. And again, just two things that I'd like to remind you of in closing from Matthew 18. Remember your debt. Remember your debt. God God lost His Son over your debt. Second, know that God remembers your debt and your debtors. The king in Matthew 18, he knows. And he does what is right. Whatever has happened to you in your life, and some of you have experienced unspeakable offenses, perhaps even horror, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18.25 Shall not the judge of the earth do right? And again, today I find myself at the end of my message calling you to faith in God. That's what it really all boils down to. Will you trust Him that He will do right? God is.